Good morning, friends. Um, once again, I've got a couple of uh, weeks off between preaching engagements. Next week, I'll actually be in uh, Angola Prison teaching the book of Galatians. But for today, we're going to take a look at a message I'm going to call One Little Word. It comes from Colossians 2, verse 15, where it says, He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, what seemed like Satan's greatest victory turned into his decisive defeat. How did it happen? What did the cross mean to Satan? A survey of the biblical evidence suggests six answers. First, when Christ died on the cross, Satan's head was crushed. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first promise given after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. It's also the first gospel sermon ever preached. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. These words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible flows from those words in Genesis 3.15. As the acorn contains the mighty oak, so these words contain the entire plan of salvation. Although you may not see it at first glance, Jesus is in this verse. He is the ultimate seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent's ugly head. In the process, his heel would be bruised on the cross. In short, this verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over Satan, but would himself be wounded at the same time. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan struck his heel, where on his body were the nails pounded in, his hands and his feet, right through his heels. On Friday after sundown, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. On Sunday morning, the true victor walked out of the grave, alive from the dead. Satan delivered a terrible blow to Jesus on Good Friday. No doubt he thought he'd thrown a knockout punch, but he was wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel. As painful as it was, that suffering was nothing compared to what Jesus did to Satan. And second, when Christ died, he destroyed the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The word destroy doesn't mean to annihilate. It means to render powerless. Like a mighty machine that's lost its power, when Jesus died on the cross, he pulled the plug on Satan. In this present age, Satan seems to be very powerful, but he can do nothing without God's express permission. He's kind of like Samson, shorn of his locks, unable to do anything on his own. The day is coming when his utter impotence will be revealed to the universe and those who followed him will discover that they were following a toothless lion. And third, when Jesus died, Satan's power of death was broken forever. Hebrews 2:14 and 15 expresses this in beautiful language. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, friends, of all the fears that grip the hearts of modern men and women, none is greater than the fear of death. We don't like to talk about death. In fact, we will do almost anything to change the subject. That's one reason people turn to alcohol or drugs or sex, pleasure, the pursuit of power. It's also one reason why we become fanatics about our health. 
I mean, deep down in the human heart, there's a fear of death that Satan uses to keep us enslaved. Don't mistake the point. Satan has no power to kill you or anyone else. He can do nothing without God's permission. But he plays upon our fear of death to keep us in the chains of sin. That's why the Bible says the sting of death is sin. When the unsaved died, they died with their sins still upon them, like a heavy burden, a vast weight bearing them down to hell. They die miserable, angry, frustrated, and fearful because they don't know what to do with their sins. What a difference it makes to die having your sins forgiven. I mean, death is hard enough to face if you're a Christ follower, but it's intolerable without the Lord. And yet every day countless thousands march into eternity with the leaden weight of sin hanging around their neck. A friend who had a loved one die recently said it succinctly in just two words, Death stinks. Yes, it does, which is why the Bible says that death is the last enemy that shall be destroyed. John Wesley used to say of the early Methodists, Our people die well. You know, dying well is a lost art, but in the old days, Christians spent much time preparing for their own departure. They understood that the way you die is the final opportunity to give a strong testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that death is a friend or that death is the natural part of life. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Death reigns because of Adam's sin. But now, through Jesus, we have his infallible word that whoever b- lives and believes in me will never die. Like most pastors, I've quoted those verses often during funeral services. I like to do it when the dead person is in the casket right in front of me. After all, that's when the full impact of Jesus' words really hits home. Do we believe Jesus or not? If we know Jesus, death is like closing our eyes and one moment later opening them in heaven. Unbelievers don't have that privilege, nor do they understand our confidence as we enter death's door. For them, death is the end. Or so they think. For us, it is just the next step to eternal life with God. Fourth, when Christ died, the devil's prisoners were released. Luke 4.18 tells us that Christ came to set the captives free and to release the oppressed. Now, who are these captives Christ came to set free? Well, we've already seen that the lost are enslaved to the devil through their fear of death, so Jesus came to open for us those prison doors and set the captives free. Now, it's possible that there may be even more to this. In the early church, for example, many people believed that between his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus went to the regions of darkness and proclaimed his victory over the devil and the demons. Some suggest that Jesus liberated the righteous souls who were in the, quote, paradise part of Hades and thus led captives free. I mean, you can read Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. I mean, that particular line of teaching has never seemed very likely to me. I think that the captivity led captive might refer to the public humiliation of the demonic forces mentioned in Colossians 2.15. But the general concept does seem sort of valid to me. I, I can find no scriptural objection to the idea of the harrowing of hell, which might even be referred to in 1 Peter 3.18-21, a, a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. The only caveat I would issue is that this doctrine must not be used to suggest that Jesus offered some post-death salvation to people in hell. That simply is not a biblical idea. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 9.27 
it is appointed to all of us to die once, and after that to face the judgment. Setting aside uh, speculation, the larger point remains. The death of Jesus brought startling changes in the spirit world, most of which remain hidden to us. I think the Bible gives us hints and glimmers of the truth, just enough to let us know that something monumental happened behind the scenes because of his death. In fifth, when Christ died, the demons were disarmed. Colossians 2.15 again says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. To disarm someone means to take from them the means by which they might hurt you. If a man has a gun, for example, pointed at you, he's not disarmed until you take that gun away from him. As long as he has the gun and sufficient ammunition, you're in big trouble. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the guns and the ammo out of the hands of the demons, and he publicly humiliated them. I mean, picture the Roman legions returning from a successful war. As they enter the city, vast throngs of women and children line the streets. On and on they march, a seemingly endless parade. Then comes the victorious generals, each one accompanied by singers, dancers, and musicians. Finally, at the end of the procession, you spot a long line of weary, dirty, emaciated men. Their hands are tied. They shuffle one after another. These are the defeated soldiers now brought back to be displayed as proof of Rome's invincible power. When Jesus died, something stupendous happened in the spiritual realm. Although it was invisible to the naked eye, it was seen by all the angels and the Old Testament saints. They watched as Jesus, like some conquering Old West hero, entered the infernal regions and disarmed the bad guys one by one. Then he marched them into full view of his Heavenly Father so that every created being would know that he had won the victory. This means that even though demons have great power, they've been disarmed, and they cannot harm us unless we rearm them by our sinful compromise. Though they attack us, if we will use the shield of faith provided for us, every fiery dart will be quenched. Some Christians live in unnecessary fear of the demonic realm because they've never understood the victory Jesus won for them. On the other hand, some believers suffer oppression because they nurse wrong attitudes and they dabble with evil. That's like giving the devil a loaded gun and saying, why don't you just go ahead and shoot me? Guess what? He'll always be glad to oblige you. And finally, we learn that as a result of the cross, Satan's doom is now guaranteed. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus declares that now the prince of this world will be driven out. In John 16:11, he adds that the prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, we learn of Satan's final end in Revelation 20, verse 12. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, and there he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, friends, that brings us to the end of the story. At the cross, Satan was disarmed, disgraced, and defeated. The words of Martin Luther tell us what this means. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his deep doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that one little word that brings the devil down? It's the name Jesus. He fought the fight. He stood his ground. 
On the cross, he utterly defeated Satan and proved it by rising from the dead. Well, if you've been listening thus far, there's only one question left unanswered, but it's a pretty big one. If Jesus defeated Satan, why is there still so much evil in the world? In the words of a popular Christian book, Satan is alive and well and living on planet Earth. See, he doesn't look very defeated sometimes. Certainly the devil seems to be having a field day. I mean, how else can you explain all the evil that seems so very prevalent these days? If Satan is defeated, he either doesn't know it or else he's taken the news very well. I put the matter that way because the New Testament presents the truth about the devil in two different ways. On the one hand, we are told over and over again that at the cross, Satan was defeated as completely as anyone can be defeated. On the other hand, we are warned in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil roams about as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we are told to put on the armor of God so we can stand in the evil day. That's in Ephesians 10, or 6, verses 10 to 17. But isn't this a contradiction? I think the answer is no, but we need to do some careful thinking at this point. What happened at the cross was indeed the total defeat of Satan. In legal terms, he was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to ultimate eternal destruction. However, that sentence has not yet been executed, although there's no way for Satan to escape it. I mean, his doom is sure. Perhaps we should say that Satan is currently out on bail wreaking havoc left and right, waiting for the day when he will be cast into the lake of fire once and for all. Until then, he is destroying lives, breaking up homes, and disrupting God's work as much as he can. If you prefer a military analogy, the cross was D-Day in World War II. Once the Allies came ashore in Normandy, the German defeat was certain. And although much fighting would ensue, and many soldiers would die, the Allies won the war on December the 6th in 1944. Satan's D-Day happened when Jesus died on the cross. Since then, his defeat has been certain, his ultimate surrender guaranteed. Meanwhile, he fights on in this desperate battle, a defeated but still dangerous foe. If Satan is defeated but still dangerous, friends, how should we deal with him? Here are a few quick suggestions. Stand and fight. Ephesians 6, 11-17 tells us to put on the whole armor of God, and it lists each piece of our personal equipment. We are to put on this armor of faith so that when the day of battle comes, when temptation stares us in the face, when we feel like quitting, instead we can stand our ground and, having done all, to stand, meaning to stand victorious at the end of the day. Here's another suggestion. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's James 4, 7. This is both a command and a promise. If we'll submit to God, that's the first part of the verse, we may be sure that when we resist the devil, he will flee. We have no power in ourselves against the devil, but he has no power to use against us when we fight with God's power. By ourselves, we can't win. With God's help, we can't lose. Here's another suggestion. Use the weapon of prayer. My mind goes to that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane Uh, when Jesus wrestled with his own fate. Knowing that he would soon bear the weight of sin, the whole sin of the world, he prays in agony, sweating as if there were great drops of blood. So great was his abhorrence of sin that he even asked God to take the cup from him. But even as he said the words, he knew that his father could not grant that request. 
Then came that great relinquishment. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus won the victory in the garden precisely because he poured out his soul to God. So friends, let us not think that our battles will be won any other way. If the Son of God must agonize in prayer, how much more must we cry out to God? Here's another suggestion. Renounce the devil and confess Christ openly. Perhaps this is part of what Jesus meant when he promised that whoever confesses him openly, he will acknowledge before the Father in heaven, and whoever denies him, he will deny before the Father. You can read that in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. In the early days of the Christian church, baptismal candidates were asked, Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? That same question is still asked today in many churches before someone is baptized. And you know something? It's entirely biblical and should be asked of ourselves every day. While I do not believe in praying to the devil or rebuking the devil verbally, that's better left to Jesus, in my opinion, I do believe that it's entirely proper that when we pray, we should renounce the devil and pray for God's help. I mean, isn't this what was meant when we were told in Matthew 6:13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? There is great hope at the end of the day for all who struggle with sin. On Easter morning, the word came down from heaven to the devil and to all his demons. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Do you feel defeated? Stand and fight. Do you feel discouraged? Stand and fight. Have you been tempted to give in? Stand and fight. Are you wavering between right and wrong? Stand and fight. Remember this, friends. The captain of our salvation has already won the battle. Satan can harass you, but he cannot destroy you. His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.